Hi, Thelmatics. Welcome to the show. Today, we have a special guest, Adam Cosberg. Adam is an award-winning writer, director, and producer. Adam is known for being a producer on the Academy Award winner for the best documentary feature, The Fog of War. Congratulations. And he has been directing for 10 years media for museums, which includes the National September 11th Museum. And currently, he's the head of films for Molecule Entertainment, which is a new film streaming service that will feature some of the best independent films, documentaries, and series, and it'll be launching in the United States and Canada at the end of 2021. Adam, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Marilyn. I'm really excited. There's nothing I enjoy more than talking about films. And, uh, you know, I'm missing that sort of theatrical film experience and then being able to speak with films, uh, you know, with my friends afterwards. So this is a real treat. Oh, yes. Uh, it's just just a light to have you. And so, you know, um, on Filmatics here, we talk about films. So I just want to know, what was one of your favorite films growing up? Well, I, I can tell you. Uh, and this is probably one of my earliest memories, uh, is actually going to the theater uh, to see uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan in 1982. Um, and I was only, believe it or not, a few months, uh, I just turned five, a few months before, <laughs> and my father took me to see it in the theaters, you know, and I know if you've seen it recently, but you know, there's dead bodies that fall out of the ceiling. And there's that worm, that mind control worm that crawls into Chekhov's ear. Oh, yeah. uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's, I, I don't know what my father was thinking. I, I guess it was just different times. I don't know. People that weren't as concerned about the <laughs> psychological effects you might have <laughs> on your child. I mean, I feel like if I took my son to see this film, he wouldn't sleep for like three years. <laughs> oh, i same age, uh, almost to the month uh, as I was. Um, but, you know, I, it had this incredible effect on me um and particularly you know that the final scene i guess a little bit of a spoiler alert of that you've had almost 40 years of <laughs> you know the scene where spock dies um and i i just so vivid i remember just you know being so upset by it you know sitting on my father's lap facing away from the the screen tears are you know pouring out of me and, I, and i'm uh, you know looking at this poor couple behind you know, behind the next row behind, you know, we thought they were going out for, you know, a nice evening at the theater and have to look at this like bawling toddler. Oh my gosh. Um, but, you know, it, it, you know, that scene, you know, the, the sacrifice and the pathos, um, you know, it just right from there, like I just understood, like, you know, the power of cinema. Um, and I've seen it, you know, probably a dozen times, you know, over the years. And, you know, to this day, um, that scene still affects me. Um, you know, it just imprinted on me. And, you know, when you, you get older, you sort of build up these, I guess, these emotional walls that kind of cut yourself off from the world and, you know, everything. Uh, and that's like one of the, one of the only films that really cuts through that for me, um, still to this day, that and Mr. Holland's Opus, that at the end of that film where he, he, you know, he's retiring and you realize, you know, you know, all his former students come and you realize, you know, he was never able to create that symphony, but he was able to, uh, you know, you know, his symphony was the lives that he affected. That always gets me. So Mr. Holland's Opus and Star Trek II, Pathacon are the two films that, you know, always get, always gets me. Otherwise, you know, I'm like a rock. <laughs> uh, but I love that film because it's just, you know, it's a film about, you know, you, 
learned over the years, you know, about facing and confronting death. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, a Star Trek film, but beyond that, it's really good film um, and really well structured and taught and propulsive. And, um, you know, it just, it, it just, it, all, it just always had this, you know, impact on me. So, and just from there, I kind of really understood the power of cinema and wanted to be in it. Yeah, I hope that your dad took you to some like a uh, Disney movie after, like maybe Goonies, to like balance out. <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, I, like I said, I, I think it was just a different era. You know, I just people didn't really, you know, they didn't consider, you know, the traumatic, you know, last effects. I mean, I'm thankful he took me now because, you know, I think it kind of really helped me on my, you know, career. But yeah, I mean, it, it was a traumatic. It was traumatic, and uh, you know, like I said, I couldn't imagine taking my see my son to see it like oh my god like just he would be a nightmare for years so. well uh, on that subject well so um you know i love criterion movies as you guys know that and, and girls uh, so i just seen as there um one of your favorite criterion movies that inspired you onto your career path yeah um it's a uh, koyana Scotsi uh by godfrey reggio which interestingly is also came out in 1982 the same as wrath of khan however i didn't see it for at least 20 years i'd say after college uh probably early 2000s was the first time i saw it um and you know it's just you know it's this visual poem that sort of you know explores the sort of disconnections between the natural world and our human built environment um it's almost you know considered almost this kind of early climate change uh film really you know this kind of cautionary tale that we're on the brink of a disaster um, where we're living, quote, you know, life out of balance with nature, which is the meaning of uh, the Hopi meaning of the word. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just, you know, has no dialogue. And it's just a film that has this sort of near perfect unity and cohesion between the visuals and the musical score by Philip Glass. Um, you know, and it's just, this film, it's just so hypnotic and mesmerizing uh, with the time lapses and the slow motion. Um, you know, it's just the one, I mean, I just think it's the best sort of fusion between score and visuals uh, that you'll ever find. Um, and it's just one of those films that I kind of come back to if I'm ever editing something that just is a visual and musical sequence. It's like I go back to it just for the rhythms of it. Um, and it's also, you know, the type of film that you, you know, it either can, can either sort of enhance your senses you know, whatever or whatever you're thinking about, you can kind of bring it to that film, or you can also just kind of let the visuals and music like just wash over you and just kind of zone out. Uh, you know, it's experimental, but it's so entertaining. I mean, I've never known anyone who's just you know, and a lot of people say, "Oh, that doesn't sound like my cup of tea," and then they see it and they're just like, "Oh, I get it. Uh, this is riveting." Um, and I just the the power of the music. Uh, you know, I actually, um, Philip Glass was actually the composer on the Fog of War. Um, oh, and I got kidding. to, Beautiful. yeah, I got to, he came to the, uh, our office once I got to meet him and he's a real mensch, uh, and a funny story. He afterwards, he and Errol, uh, Morris, uh, they went out to this fancy dinner in, um, a fancy restaurant in Boston. Uh, we were in Cambridge, uh, where Errol's office is based and, um, uh, Errol has the sort of uniform he wears like every day. It's a button down shirt khakis and sneakers 365 days a year that is what he wears doesn't matter the occasion 
Um, and I, so I went to this restaurant and the, you know, hostess Major D said, you know, said, oh, she, you know, so we don't, we don't permit guests uh, with sneakers. Um, so they laughed and I guess a guest said, you know who you just kicked out? That was, you know, Philip Glass and Herb Morris and the hostess like sprinted down the street after them apologizing and, oh, you know, buddy, they've been and comping their dinner. Oh uh, my just God. so embarrassed. But, yeah. You know. <laughs> I, I worked for some, uh, some bosses, they were twins and they were multimillionaires and they wore the same jeans every day. So I'm just like, and you know, you think of like, um, my other podcast is Girls Guide to Investing that, uh, you know, one of the richest person p- people in the world, you know, he drives an old car. So, you know, I mean, um, I-, I like how that he just um, creates in creative. So, you know, very interesting stories. I love it. And also, you know, um, I heard that one of your favorite directors is, uh, you know, their brothers. Can you tell us about your favorite director? Yes, the Cohen brothers. I hope that's okay. You're not going to make me choose between Joel and Ethan. <laughs> no, uh, I mean, if I had to, I mean, obviously we go with Joel. We know who's carrying the water. And I don't know. Uh, you know I, I think of them as kind of, I assume, on set, kind of a hive mind. So uh, I count them as, as one. Um, but, you know, they, you know, for me, um, I just, I love everything about them. I just love that they, you know, created two of, I think, the best comedies of all time uh, with uh, Raising Arizona and Big Lebowski. Uh, and then, of course, you know, some of the best dramas, um, Fargo, Blood Stimple, Barton Fink, uh, Miller's Crossing. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, they just the way that they can sort of move between sort of intense seriousness um and suffering but also just sort of slapstick and joy you know it's so effort effortlessly um you know it's sort of this you know it's just they're so identifiable you know when you're watching the coen brothers film you know sometimes i you know i watch you know a film on i'm looking at a film to view on netflix and i'm like this looks interesting i watch a trailer and i go oh you know i saw this film before and i totally forgot it um you know whether you love it or hate it you would never forget a Coen Brothers film. Um, everything, it just, they're so memorable. And there's movies I haven't, of theirs I haven't seen in 20 years. And I can still picture the scenes in my head, you know, so vividly. Um, you know, and it is this incredible characters and story. And like I said, just the way that they can sort of move through different genres and tones. Um, and the beautiful, you know, the point of view shots. Um, so recognizable. Um, it just the, you know, for me, um, you know, you know, they had that one little period of time, and the, you know, the, I don't, you know, they're doing intolerable cruelty and lady killer. And you're like, oh, have they lost it? And then, then they come back with, um, you know, no country for old men. And you're like, oh, oh no, 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 no. What, still, what a, what a beauty. Hunters. What a beauty. Oh my yeah. gosh. You know, yes. Wow. And then, um, you know, uh, do you have a favorite film shot that you could share with us? Yeah, I mean, I, I almost could point to the entire movie, mm-hmm. um, but I can give a few examples, uh, you know, which is Mad Max Fury Road, uh, the George Miller film, um, I think 2015, if I'm not mistaken, um, which for my money, my, my money is the best shot action film of all time and one of the best shot films, I think, period. I mean, I... I 
I don't want to disrespect Die Hard and say it's the best action film. Period. Let's just say there it's in the discussion. Um, I don't, you know, I don't want to go on record as you know dissing Die Hard, um, <laughs> but it's certainly the best shot action film. Um, period. I mean, it's just it. I, you know, I guess it just it took Miller like fifteen or twenty years. There was like he did thirty five hundred storyboards. The crew was like almost two thousand people. <laughs> Uh, just was 400 hours of footage that was like edited down by his, you know, his editor and wife, uh, Margaret Sixel, uh, won the Academy Award for the best film editing. Um, but, you know, it's this film, you know, it's just the most taut, propulsive, kinetic whirlwind of a film um, you will ever see. And, you know, I guess obviously the best known shot, um, it's also something I find incredible, you know, is that scene where, shot where Furiosa, Played by Charlize Theron, you know, learns that the green place, the sort of eat, you know, mystical Eden of her youth, um, was actually the sort of poison swampland that they had just passed through. And she walks out onto the sand dune and removes her prosthetic arm and then falls to her knees and sort of lets out this primal scream to the heavens. You know, it's all taken in this wide shot, you know, with the sand whipping and this beautiful golden light. Um, and it's just the most powerful shot. Um, but you know, for me, you know, and again, I can almost point to almost any sequence really though, but like the first five minutes up until, um, the title card, um, where Max gets captured, um, he's brought into this cave and he's, you know, tattooed and he's about to be branded. Uh, and then he escapes and there's this incredible chase that's seen through the caves. Um, and where this film, I think just stands out, um, in terms of the cinematography um, and the editing, uh, or, you know, those two really go hand in hand. Um, it's just that, you know, there are incredible number of cuts per minute. There's pushes and pulls and speed ramps and blending and inserts. And you never lose the sense of the action of what you're looking at, not even for a moment. You And also beyond that, you always understand, I guess, the emotional element or component or motivation of every shot. Um, you know, emotional intent, it's just whatever point of view you're sharing at that moment, you're sympathizing with that character and you understand the stakes, um, you know, and so he's running through this cave, but then it also, they sort of start intercutting sort of him confronting sort of images of this young girl, uh, and other characters that he tried to save and, but he failed. Um, so he's not just running quote unquote from the people chasing him. He's running sort of from his past. Yeah. Right. Every scene just has this, you know, as I said, you understand the emotional motivation of it. Um, and no disrespect to, like, say, Paul Greengrass and what he did with, like, the Born Supremacy with all the fast cutting and shaky camera mov movement. But what John Seale did here and Miller on uh, Sixel is, I mean, just infinitely more difficult, uh, in my opinion. Um, and I love Paul Greengrass and his film that preceded Born Supremacy. Um, Bloody Sunday is a masterpiece. And I just feel like that technique works a lot better in, you know, in the context of that film than it did in Born Supremacy. Again, still very good film. Uh, but, you know, the action here, I mean, it's just, it's sort of almost a classical way, but, you know, in terms of you always understand it, but there's so many techniques and so much cutting, and yet it's always understandable. Uh, and, you know, it's, and it's, you know, this again, again, like point to that opening scene, you know, and it's just, it's a film about, you know, Max, the character sort of, um, you know, who's running from his past and haunted by his past. And, you know, his journey in the film is sort of 
becoming someone who stops running and who commits himself again to helping others rebuild. Um, and it's all set up in the course of this action sequence. Um, and, you know, it's, I mean, I don't think, I mean, I know George Miller's doing a sequel called Furiosa. Um, I think it's supposed to come out in a few years. Um, but I, I just, I, it's almost hard to imagine that anything could be, you could surpass this film. Um, you know, and for him to do it in his seventies, I mean, it just blows my mind. I mean, that's, you know, the point where most people are slowing down. <laughs> and, like, George Miller just delivered the best, you know, action film of all time. We're right up there. Yeah. Well, uh, can you tell us then, you know, um, how you started? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I sort of got involved um, with, you know, making little television skits and films uh, in college. Um, and then after college, I literally uh, moved from Boston to California. Um, I had a friend and he got me a job as a production assistant on a pilot for a remake of the game show Card Sharks. Um, you know, not necessarily the most glamorous <laughs> position, but, it, you know, it got my foot in the door. Um, and from there, you know, the production manager took me with him um, to be a production coordinator on this um, American Film Institute used to do these 100 mo- top 100 movie specials that aired on CBS on their 100, top 100, it's called 100 Years, 100 Thrills. Um, and got me uh, a job on that. I first as a production assistant, then I got promoted to production coordinator during the course of the production um, on that. Um, and, you know, it was just, again, I was just, you know, learning about production. Um, really just great to get, again, my foot in my door. But then just, you know, this funniest story. It was my father's girlfriend's interior decorator was friends with the wife of Errol Morris. Wow. And through that, got an interview. He went for he was looking for someone uh to start as a researcher um on what was filmed that would become the Fog of War. Um and you know, sort of put that connection and flew out to Boston and, you know, interviewed and got the job and then you know, again over the course of that four years got, you know, um promoted to producer on it. But um yeah, it was, you know, again, um you know, connections are very helpful, I guess, to get your foot in the door. Uh, and then it's kind of up to you to, um, you know, uh, you know, sink or swim uh, and show, you know, your worth and value. Um, and, you know, it's funny. I always say, you know, you can. Um, yeah, I, obviously I, I, I didn't stay long in L.A., uh, though I did spend another another five years out there before moving back to New York. But, um, you know, the um, you know, you can. If you're willing to stick it out in Los Angeles, just through attrition, you can actually have a pretty good career. You know, I feel like if you could stay out, if you could commit yourself to staying out to LA for 25 years, like, you know, you'll end up being ahead of a studio. Uh, you know, so many people just, you know, come and go in out of LA and it's just like, you need to like really have persistence, get your foot in the door uh, and then be persistent. <laughs> I think you can typically have a pretty good career uh, just because so many people bail on it. Uh, you know, it's not an easy life. Um, you know, or can be difficult um, and sort of having a break, but, you know, really just need to be persistent, as I said. Yeah. And, and um, I just want to let the audience know that you interviewed Bill Clinton for your September 11th museum. So congratulations. That How was that? That was an amazing interview for you. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Actually, I ended up interviewing him twice um, also for the um, his, uh, work I was doing for the, the Dwight D. Eisenhower Presidential Memorial. But the first time, yeah, we, I was interviewing him, and uh, we were scheduled to do it. He was giving some lecture at the Waldorf Astoria, or some conference there. So 
you know, we were told, okay, you have to, you know, get in at 10 a.m. We're going to, you're going to be on a secure floor. And once you're on the floor, you're going to be cleared by the Secret Service and then you can't leave. And when he has availability, he's going to come in. But we don't really know when. So we got in at 10 a.m., set up the shot. And I, we, I did 100, over 100 of these interviews for, the, for this one exhibit for the 9-11 Museum. And so this was one of the last because um, we had tried to schedule it for years. Um, and so at this one, I had done, I had set up like 25 of these shoots. So I could do them with my eyes closed. And, you know, typically, if it's just on a black background, um, there was a teleprompter. But, you know, it was just like I could do it in, when you, you know, first started out two hours, like maybe 45 minutes max. So set up and, you know, th- ready to shoot by like 10.45 a.m. And, you know, we didn't know when he was coming. So we just had to sit there. And, you know, when we were told, you know, you only had 20 minutes, 20 minutes, that's it. So, you know. I literally spent equivalent. I think it was like seven hours of just going through all the questions in my head. And if he said this, I'm going to ask this. And if he says this, I'm going to say this. All the you know that sort of branching tree, question tree. And I just completely psyched myself out. You know, I, I wasn't like that nervous when I started, but at the end of you know waiting for seven hours, I just was like, you know, I was a wreck. I was just like, I'm going to freeze. I'm going to blow this. <laughs> and, all of a sudden, he came. No, no warning. All of a sudden, Secret Service, you know, door open. He's in the chair. So, you know, I knew we had we were really tight. So, I, you know, decided, you know, we had to do quick lighting adjustments, and you know, I gave a little introduction. And first thing he says to me is, "Oh, you know, you you worked on the Fog of War, right?" I was like, "Yeah." And he's like, "That's one of my favorite films." You know, Robert McNamara wrote me this really nice letter uh, when I, you know, became president. That's included in my biography, and you know, that's wonderful. And he completely like disarmed me, you know, and he took the time, uh, you know, he had some advanced, you know, advanced team, you know, give him a little information who was interviewing him. But it just completely, you know, put me at ease. Um, And I, you know, I've interviewed a lot of other politicians and some of them are some of the worst interviews you'll ever do because (laughs) you can ask them 500 different questions and they will funnel that question into one or five or six of their stock answers. They will find a way. <laughs> and he's just one of these people who really thinks about what he's going to say. And he also likes his answers are just in paragraph form, you know, like he comes up with what he wants to say, and then he speaks it as a paragraph. Um, and it was kind of one of these things I realized that it's like, it doesn't even matter. He's the opposite of most politicians. No matter how bad my question is, he's going to give you a very good answer. That's, <laughs> so that's it, it ended up being a great interview. And again, I met him again and, you know, he remembered me. And you just like understood, okay, I understand how you got to be president just because, you know, you have this incredible charm. And also, you know, the fact that he, you know, he must meet a thousand people a day, um, you know, but just he, all of a sudden, you know, he just can personalize, uh, you know. With, you know, in your office, your best friends right off the bat with him. So. Oh, great. Yeah. And so, um, you know, you're, you're, we're recording live from New York. And can you tell us, um, you know, how COVID is in New York? And I, I know, can you tell us about your, your restaurant stories? <laughs> oh, well, I, I mean, you know, I feel like, you know, there's really nothing good really that has come from COVID in this situation, except... Uh, you know, the one thing is that how many new uh, great restaurants that 
would never have done takeout before are, you know, now committed to takeout. Um, and, you know, there's this really um, famous restaurant uh, called Peter Luger's Steakhouse. It's from like the 1880s. It's like five, six blocks to, from my house. Uh, are you there? Yes, 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 yes. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, that's five, six blocks from my house. And, you know, it's like impossible to get in. There's always lines and waiting. And they did takeout and they do this burger um, just for lunch, uh, which is, um, what they do is they take the unsold steak from the night before and they grind that up and that's the meat. And it's just, you know, melts in your mouth. Um, so it's like one of the few, like I said, benefits of all of this is just like, I can now get these incredible, you know, meals and just eat them in my home, which is usually how I prefer to eat things anyway. Um, but other than that, you know, I have this incredibly, um, active five-year-old, um, and, you know, having to spend so much time with him in this, you know, tiny New York apartment is, um, it's very it's miserable. Um, you know, it's just, I cannot wait, uh, until, uh, I am vaccinated and we can hopefully kind of go back to <laughs> at least some semblance of life beforehand. Uh, but other than that, yeah, I am enjoying the food. So. Yeah. Yeah. My mom is, um, in, uh, in Naples, Italy right now. And they're in the, uh, the, the red zone, which is like the bad zone. I go, how is that? Like you're in a small town. They don't even have a train there anymore. Cause the train moved to stuff like you and all the, you know, there's a lot of elderly people there, but they just sit outside their house every day. It's not like they're, they're like, you know, jet setting around the world. So it's just, yeah. And they're crammed in these little places, but you know, people are um, zooming and they're doing podcasts. And so, you know, if, uh, if your little boy wants to listen to my podcast, Enchanting Book Readings, and trying to, you know, give give the kids something enjoyable to listen to, which is, um, you know, literally helping families around the world. But I tell people, create, create, um, talk, make podcasts talk and like draw and do your art and, you know, um, even do little YouTube videos or TikTok videos of, of dancing um, just to get that connectivity. So, yeah. So I'm like with you. I'm hoping that... Um, we have good news and positivity coming up for 2021. And I want to ask you, you know, how has COVID affected your art, you know, with your um, productions? Well, I mean, I don't think it's been particularly beneficial <laughs> in any way. I mean, you know, you do realize both, you know, you do miss sort of the personal connection. Uh, there's something from being in the same room with people and ideating uh, that you are missing that just, can't be replicated, I think, particularly well, you know, over Zoom. Um, and, you know, the flip side, of course, though, is you do realize that, you know, probably don't need to spend quite as much time, you know, for the most for most people in an office. Um, and that, you know, I think that hopefully the one thing we take away from all of this is that, you know, employers understand that, you know, you can actually have, you know, give people employees some flexibility uh you know there's times where everyone needs to be in an office and meeting and then there's plenty of times where people can be really productive just you know staying at home or you know and you know it's nice sometimes to be able to pick my you know my son up from school every day uh, and drop him off um you know so there's some benefits uh you know to working from home though i am, I am definitely looking forward to going back to an office uh but you know <laughs> some flexibility hopefully my favorite thing is and i hope like you guys don't mind me telling you this if i have an early meeting you know on zoom or google i i just you know i'm basically have my computer next to my bed so i'm just like well can we do it non-video if we can so yeah. no one can see like i didn't do my hair or makeup and i'm literally in my bed with a zoom <laughs> or google <laughs> 
So if you had to get ready and go somewhere and drive, then you have to get up like two hours earlier. So that has been one of my favorite things. I don't have to do that two hour commute early. I I don't think I've worn anything other than sweatpants for for maybe five days since, (laughs) you know, March. Uh, You know, it's just that, that, you know, just I can't even imagine like just having to wear jeans or anything else. It's just. I'm just sweatpants. It just feels good to me. So yeah, I might, I might just stick with that and then I'll, you know, I'll you know, maybe get some cool looking sneakers and that'll just be my look, <laughs> uh, you know, try to pass it off. It's kind of hip and cool, but in reality, I'm just all about leisure wear now. So, <laughs> yeah. And so can you share before, um, uh, you leave us today about your, your launching your, your molecular film streaming service with us? Yes. So, um, Malika Films um, said we'll be launching, um, it's, you know, a new streaming service, um, really going to feature, as I said, sort of really great independent films and docs series. Um, we'll be launching um, actually in the second quarter in England, Germany, and Holland, uh, third quarter in India, and the fourth quarter, uh, hopefully, in the U.S. and Canada. Um, and, you know, we, you know, I just feel like there's, um, you know, market for, you know, independent films that, you know, start being well-serviced uh, and, you know, really, you know, hoping to appeal to really, you know, to film connoisseurs, um, you know, people who, you know, these independent films that are, I guess, you know, somewhat falling through the cracks that we're really going to feature. Um, and, it should, you know, it should be something for really your audience uh, that will really enjoy, um, you know, hopefully that, you know, the films that we're going to, um, that we're going to feature. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today, Larry. Uh, Adam. I mean, Adam, Adam Cosberg, sorry. No problem. <laughs> so until next week, everyone, thank you for listening. Thank you so much, Adam Cosberg. <laughs> okay, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.